Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. Usually within the first few questions, it's like, well, you know, it's amazing how you got to $1 million in revenue in the first week. And then you so graciously say, yes, but people don't realize what happens behind the scenes that Forbes or or entrepreneur, whoever doesn't mention. So I guess, you know what, just to kind of get out of the way so I can just be another me too. Why don't you talk about a little bit what went on besides what people saw on the front facing of the fact that you reached $1 million in your first week of of revenue for HIMS. Um, and Andrew, by the way, he is the founder of HIMS, which is probably like, you know, I a fastest growing, I, I guess I, can, I can't even say that because it's a category that's so new, right? In the telemedicine subscription-based model uh, that you started two years ago that now like has been evaluated at 1.6 billion or what's the, what's the new evaluation of your, of your, of HIMS now? Yeah, so we just um, we just announced a that the company is going public um, in the next couple of months through a partnership with Oak Tree Acquisition Corp through a SPAC, and so the deal prices the company at one point six billion. Yeah, that's it. That's what are it. you doing? I know, I know. I've got, <laughs> a, know? Lot of, I've got a lot of work to do. So yeah, you really you really do. So. Yeah. Um, well, let's start like the fact that you are like an interesting cat anyway, because you were a cellist, you kind of didn't like, you were kind of on the artsy side, the more creative side. And, you know, you went, then you went to business school, you went to Wharton, right? That's right. So how did you kind of like ricochet into this entire world of venture funds? And what was your path before HIMS? Yeah. So, you know, I think you're, you're totally right. So in the beginning, um, you know, in the in my early years as a cellist, I was traveling the world playing cello. I played hundreds of weddings in San Francisco uh, when I was in my teens. You know, I was setting up my cello with a little tip jar out in Union Square, down downtown San Francisco, making money. And you know, I bought my car when I was a teenager that way. So that that was really where I was spending all my time. And I was a part of organizations and orchestras and uh, quartets and. And, you know, I think my family is kind of a mix of both the, the creative and the business side. My dad is a um, self-taught pianist, but he's essentially a concert pianist, can play any, any song he hears. He can jump on the piano and replicate it um, wow. by ear. Um, but at the same time, also has run his own business and was an attorney. Um, and, and so I think in my family, it was always this combination of the arts as well as business. And so it was a really logical step for me to go uh, to Warren and, and kind of counterbalance the artistic side of me. Um, and I think what's interesting is, you know, the way that I ended up in startups and ended up in technology was that it was the most creative um, uh, route in business that I could find, right? I was sitting in corporate finance classes at Warren, um, you know, sketching interfaces for mobile apps, and designing in PowerPoint brand ideas for new companies. Uh, And all my peers next to me were paying attention and doing a really good job in school. And they all ended up at Goldman and, you know, making a ton Mm -hmm. of money in in, in New York. And I, you know, it just wasn't where my passion was. And so I love that combination of creative customer, consumer brands, experiences, design, and coupling those with business models that just were really good business models and had sustainability. And so that's how I ended up, um, you know, in kind of the Valley and in, in Silicon Valley building companies, starting a venture fund and a venture studio, co-founding a whole bunch of businesses is just kind of, you know, finding this intersection between, uh, you know, beautiful design and art, as well as underlying fundamentals that make for great businesses. Cause you were at a, t- you were working at atomic labs, right? That was your, that was your, yeah. So prior, so prior to HIMSS, I, I uh, co-founded and ran a venture studio, Atomic Labs, out in San Francisco. It's a couple hundred million dollar fund uh, that we'd raise every couple of years, anchored by amazing people. Our partners were Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen and, and many others. And, and what we did there was essentially design and test and bring to market dozens of companies every year. Um, and then we'd refine those down to just 
a few each year that actually, you know, we'd invest a large amount of capital in and, and launch and scale. Um, but it was this incredible um, uh, pressure cooker of exploring ideas, testing ideas, um, and building companies over the course of the last, you know, six and seven years. And so then how did HIMS come to be? Like you were doing that for a while and you were, as I can't, so over, so in about a hundred of those companies, you said how many actually like take, kind of take on a life of its own then? You said 10, 15? Yeah, probably. We probably yeah. end up building one in 10 companies, um, something along that range. And so in the last six years, seven years, we've co-founded about a, uh, about a dozen companies um, and we've raised close to a billion or more in capital across those companies. Um, but from you know that one company that we ended up building that that is now launched and and hims and hers was one of those companies. There was you know ten or fifteen behind the scenes that we tested and and failed at and couldn't make work. So you know again it's always uh, you know the, what people see is the success, but so much of it is you know that time behind the scenes. I know. So okay, let, let, so let's talk about that a little bit. So let's talk. So how did you first? So then you're doing all this for like eight years. Um, and then why hymns? Like, why did you decide that was going to be your thing that you were going to kind of go with? Yeah. You know, there's, there was this, this interesting combination with hymns and hers where you had an incredible opportunity to help hundreds of millions of people, right? In healthcare, you're talking about $4 trillion market, yeah. the last multi-trillion dollar market that's been truly innovated in. Right, and so huge opportunity to help millions and millions of people. And then also you had this combination of structural changes taking place that made the timing of this business perfect. Um, and as an entrepreneur, you're always looking for those two things. You're looking for you know, how do I impact a lot of people? How do I help a lot of people? And then how do I know that this business is actually timed appropriately and can scale and succeed right in this moment? Um, and with things like you know, new consumer expectations of mobile technology, people pick up their phone, they want to click a button and talk to a doctor, like that's a new expectation. Um, people are busier than ever, high deductible insurance plans, like all like the system is so broken, broken, and it was coming to this point that it just made sense to go in and build. And I think the fun part for me, because again, as a repeat entrepreneur, and as a serial founder, you know, how I see hims and hers is, a vehicle for healthcare innovation, right? It's just a brand. Hims and Hers is a brand for health and wellness. And underneath that brand can live dozens of different businesses um, and dozens of different offerings and services that can help people live their best, best life or be the healthiest version of themselves, et cetera. Um, live their best life. That's like a, <laughs> such a, you know, funny cliche, live their best life. Totally, yes. Totally. But I mean, it's like access to things yeah. that make you feel better and are healthier and, and so, you know, jumping to hims and hers and building out this innovation platform for health was just was too exciting. So, yeah, starting in 2016 or so, I transitioned away from the fund uh, and, and founded hims and hers full time. You know, it's interesting in this four trillion dollar marketplace of healthcare, right? You have it like it's very different. There's a big difference between wellness, I believe, and healthcare, right? There is a major difference. There's been so much money spent and uh, in fitness and technology, but not much on the healthcare. And there's such a difference. Yeah. You know, have you seen like, like every day, like every time I think there's going to, there's not, there's the market is saturated in the fitness space of like another app, another thing. Uh, lo and behold, another one gets, uh, you know, starts and it's evaluated at a crazy number. And that keeps on happening, but like, it's like a small pocket. Why do you think that is like, why is that, that not, none of the other pieces of the pie is ever like ever delved into for healthcare? You know, I think, uh, there's been a lot of constraints in healthcare for a very long time, uh, starting with the fact that the whole ecosystem in healthcare is entrenched players. You've got insurance companies, yeah. pharmacies, uh, health plans, corporations, everybody's incentivized one way or another to make money for each other. But yeah. none of those incentives are really optimized towards the consumer having an amazing experience and having it be fast and affordable and efficient, right? Like that has nothing to do with healthcare. It's about like reimbursements and 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 pharmacy rebates and things of that sort. And so I think the, the entrenched interests 
have made it hard for people to build real innovation in healthcare. Um, and then I think the regulatory landscape has also been very challenging. You know, it, it's it's a new phenomenon that we can now pick up our phone, click a button, and talk to a doctor. That was quite frankly illegal five years ago, right? You had to see a doctor in person, or you had to pick up the phone and talk to that doctor. And so this idea of telemedicine, and in specifically, you know, specifically um, asynchronous telemedicine, where you can text message a doctor, or they can send you an email, or you can take a photo and send it to them. That whole exchange is something that is brand new regulation, right? You're talking about yeah. two, three years old. Um, and so for the first time, people can actually pick up their phone and interact with the doctor the way we would pick up our phone and interact with everything else in our life. And so I think that's been a really big constraint to the healthcare industry um, and specifically technologists who wanted to build something uh, of value in healthcare because we just weren't able to use the technology that people know and love. So then why did you like you got you have a lot of hair in your head. So <laughs> why did you like it, it couldn't be for hair loss? What, what made you think, you know, you know what, I'm going to launch with hair loss products I'm gonna, and erectile dysfunction products. I don't even want to know about that. But what were the two, like, what was your, did you just see a major gap in the marketplace that people were needing these things or that men were not being serviced? What was your reasoning behind it? You know, we, we from the very beginning, have this vision of being you know, that health and wellness platform for, for men and women, but we had to start somewhere. And so we went and talked to a whole bunch <laughs> of guys uh, and we learned a lot. And what we learned, and, and it's not really a surprise when you think about it, men hate going to the doctors. Like we absolutely despise it, right? Unless we're bleeding from the head or we have a broken leg, like we'll try to figure out an excuse to avoid it. But that doesn't mean that men don't wake up every day and, you know, look in the mirror and are concerned about things, right? Just like everybody else, right? And so, you know, in their early 20s and 30s, what we would hear is that people are suffering from anxiety and depression. They're suffering from um, the fact that they have acne, the fact that they're losing their hair and they're in their 20s and their 30s. And, you know, that those are the years where they're building their career and building a, a foundation and finding a partner and getting married. So it, it made them incredibly insecure. Um, we heard that people were suffering from uh, sexual health issues, but they were too uh, you know, uncomfortable bringing them up to a doctor. And in a lot of situations, these people didn't even have a doctor that they could bring it up to, right? And so there was this massive gap between the fact that unanimously people said, yes, there are issues I'm worried about. And then when you ask them, okay, are you getting treated? Unanimously, no, I'm not. Right. And it was like, why? What, what is the reason? And so much of that was stigma. Right. People were embarrassed. Right. People felt like they were the only ones suffering from whatever it was. Um, and so I think building a brand that not only made it easy for people to get access to these things and affordable, which has historically been very difficult, but also something that kind of encourages people to go seek treatment for all this stuff because it's really freaking normal. You know, like if you are worried about yeah. erectile dysfunction and you're 35, that's pretty normal. It turns out, right. You're not, you're not the only one. In fact, like probably of your five buddies, uh, two other buddies are also suffering from it. Right. Statistically speaking. And right. So I think just building a brand that normalizes health issues um, and, um, you know, sparks conversation and, and creates energy and excitement to go seek treatment. To me, I think that was a really important part of the business because that was such a friction point for why these men and, and women as well were not, were not getting care. I mean, yeah, I can see. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, for years, though, I would always see, you know, you get all the spam about, you know, buy this pill, that pill, right? Like there, there was always access, but it was, it was kind of like a shady way of getting it, right? So you guys kind of like made it unshady in a way, you know, you kind of branded it nicely and kind of gave it to people in a nice, you know, red bow, right? Like that's more than that, but that's kind of, because there was always access to those things, but it was like you're doing it like, you know, in in the D on the on the DL, right? Like 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, when you talk about things like things that affect your, how you look, right? Um, right. There are always snake oil type marketing and branding, right? Like use this cream and your wrinkles will disappear. You know, like use the shampoo, your hair grows back, you know, all of those things. Um, and a lot of it's fake, right? A lot of it is just not trustworthy. It's not actual medicine. Right. And so I think what we did for the first time was commit to only selling, you know, trusted clinically backed medicine, um, commit to you actually having a partnership with a physician and a doctor through the whole, through the whole experience to make sure that whatever treatment you're getting is appropriate and it's um, you know, safe for you. Um, right. And then lastly, you know, making sure it's all um, uh, affordable, right? Like so many of those other things would just rip people off. You know, you think about, I mean, here's like a crazy stat. Do you want to answer your phone? Yeah, Viagra used to be $65 per pill. Um, And, you know, the average dose was 10 pills a month, right? So so men, and it's not covered by insurance. So men are paying $600 per month for Viagra, which, you know, is no surprise when you think about their marketing. It was all these, you know, older white men in their 70s on a beach in linen pants. And it's because like, literally, that was like the only demographic of dude in the country. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It's so true. You know, that medicine. Um, and so I think, um, I think being able to bring it down to a price point in an accessible way was really important in, in unlocking the business that we built. Yeah, absolutely. But your marketing is so, I mean, your branding is so beautiful and on point and relatable and there's like an emotional uh you know you feel something emotionally which what every company wants to do there's a there's a big difference between even building a brand and a company right like where can you tell us how you were able what kind some of the strategies that you felt like really why like what resonated in, in the fact that you were able to build a brand and not just a company yeah you know i think from the very beginning um that was something we we thought about and invested in a lot of time in. So for example, we, you know, before we launched, we designed, I think like five or six different brands for what this thing was going to look like. And we had a whole roster of names. Like some of them were like Triple Point was one of the names. Like Admiral was one of the names. Club Room was one of their names. I mean, like all types of different stuff. Um, because we knew that you know, getting to the emotional... Did you think of those names or who was the, who was the group thinking of these uh, yeah, names? Did you hire? It was our team. And then we had also amazing creative design resources around us helping us. Yeah. Um, but we knew that the vision was broad. We knew that we wanted to help people across dozens of conditions and empower them over the next 10 and 20 years. And so it needed to hit a couple of critical points. One, it had to be a brand that was broad. So no matter mm-hmm. who you were, it could speak to you because whether or not you're rich or poor or black or white, gay or straight, like you are still suffering from hair loss at the same rates as the other guy. You're still suffering from anxiety. You know, the women are still suffering from melasma post-pregnancy at the same rates. I mean, the numbers from a health standpoint are the same. So we had to build a brand that would speak to everybody, but we also had to build a brand that was not about the product. Um, because where we were launching and where we were going was very different. So it had to be a a brand that was around the feeling. Like when you see it, it's beautiful. It's exciting. It's different. It's like fairly irrelevant or irreverent, Mm -hmm. right? It's irrelevant. It's hardly irrelevant. No, no, irreverent. (laughs) Irreverent. Yeah. Irreverent. It's like, I'm just teasing you. You know, it's like, uh, it's it's beautifully designed things you would never expect to be beautifully designed. Yeah. And so I think, you know, we just focused on that emotional piece um, because we knew we had that broad vision and um, and knew that we needed to, to be something that so many people in the country could resonate with um, because we had to. If we really wanted to help people across the spectrum in this country and across all ages in this country, we, we had to build a brand that, that resonated with them. And so that's why we came back to Hims and Hers um, as a broad brand. So who actually thought of the name Hims and Hers? Uh, it was our first, it was me and our first couple teammates. There was like a four person team at the time. That's so, a good name. Yeah, it's good. It's simple. 
really simple. And Usually the best things are simple. I was going to say, like, that's the thing. Like, can, that's, I think a lot with marketing and, and, and branding, it's keeping it very simple, stupid, right? You don't yeah. want to overcomplicate things. Can you give us a couple other strategies that you, that why you think it was successful in the branding? Um, you know, I think we, you know, one of the things that was, I think, really different, um, and you kind of mentioned it in healthcare in particular, there's tons of snake oil, there's tons of like, people pushing things on you over and over and over again, getting you to like yeah. buy something. Um, and I think one of the things we believed was if you could build a brand that was beautiful and curated throughout the whole experience, you land on the site, you buy the product, it shows up, it's stunning, it smells good, it tastes good, like all of those elements, if those are all on point, you don't need to tell anybody that you're trusted. And you don't need to tell anybody that it's safe and that it's medically backed and that it's clinically approved. You don't need to blast the website with doctors in their white coats, you know, and big FDA checkbox logos, right? You could actually build a deeper level of trust with people by just building an experience instead of products that inherently, you know, communicated trust and quality. I mean, so I think when you think of a lot of healthcare, you think of, you know, doctor's offices and you think of mm -hmm. marketing with physicians and, you know, they're all standing in a row, like 10 of them, right? Um, right. Uh, and that's what marketing has been for, for the healthcare industry. Uh, and I think we just flipped that upside down. We said, you know, instead of us yelling at somebody that we're trustworthy, but then the experience is shit and it's clinical and cold and no, you know, no one enjoys it. We're going to make the experience wonderful and then hopefully not have to put, not have to push and not have to sell, um, because the experience ex itself will, will kind of sell itself. Can, um, yeah, I think that's actually, I, I agree with that. Do you feel, what were some things that didn't work? I know we talked about a little, I was kind of teasing you about the million dollar week that everyone keeps on, you know, focusing on, um, which by the way is amazing, obviously, but I want to know about some of the things that actually, like what did go on behind the scenes? Like you weren't, you, you keep on, you said that you weren't an overnight success, but even two years in the making is still not that, that's still pretty, yeah. A pretty small amount of time. Yeah. So you you did a lot of things right. What are some of the things that you did wrong um, that we that people can learn from that are if they're starting a business or yeah want to start a business? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the the most obvious ones that pop up is how we were thinking about building the brand and selling products. So when we launched. Um, we essentially were, give, we were giving away stuff. It was come to him's or come to hers, come get it for five bucks. Um, and our thought was, hey, this is a situation where we want every single person in the world to try this. Um, we want to make it as simple and affordable and as, as easy as possible to get, which I think is all you know altruistic things and all things that we believe in and from an access standpoint. But we we believe that that was necessary to scale. You need a you need to offer crazy discounts. You need to make it, you know, dirt cheap so anyone can try. Right. And I think what we realized over the course of a year or two is that, you know, this the things that we were selling were really valuable, and the experience we had built was was actually really seamless. And you know, people the people would have to pay fifty or hundred dollars to come get access to something that that we had on the platform. And I think what what we ended up doing is in a lot of ways, um, not doing the hard work of figuring out how to market the offering correctly at the price that it should be priced and kind of decided to go the cheap and dirty route by, hey, we're going to make this really affordable. Come get it for nothing, right? And it attracts customers. And so I think when you're balancing business, building the business um, and talking to customers and offers, you know, I think in the beginning years, our philosophy um, was all around that we needed to do that in order to build a big business. We had to do that in order to scale. And I think it was just a lot harder work to actually like go talk to your customers, learn about the things that they love about the, the product and the features, figure out the ways to market to them perfectly, the channels that work, how do you position it, etc to really convince them that this is worth buying. And then once they buy it, convince them that it was worth staying on. 
Um, and so I think I see a lot of companies follow that trend, uh, which is a trend we fell into. Um, I think it's a trend that a lot of entrepreneurs and teams lean on for, for growth. Um, but I think when you're talking about building an enduring business, at the end of the day, you have to have products people want and they want to pay for them. Um, and so you have to do the hard work of you know, finding the right messaging, the right product offering, the right customer, the right price point that also allows for a great business and piecing those, those things together. So what was a mistake that you made that you found out the hard way? Like what were you, what, name one of those things that you did? Well, we had, yeah, we were, we were, we were spending money and we were marketing, um, I think a message that didn't necessarily, um, resonate. Well, not, no, it's resonating because it was like free, right? Yeah, <laughs> free, exactly. Free. Come free. free. Exactly. It Everyone free, likes free. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't building the brand, right? It People weren't coming and being like, I'm, this is a value, valuable asset. I'm going to pay for it and building trust. You know, instead people were knowing us as a, you know, a, a, a free brand, a discount oriented brand. Um, and so there's, there's emotional d- dynamics there too, where if you want to build something for the long haul, your customers can't always be expecting to get something for free or to get something at a discount right. or affordably like at, at like a dirt price sales, you know, sales dynamics. Yeah. They need to be able to and want to spend money on the things that you're offering. And so I think, I think we did that wrong. I think it was an early mistake um, that we're really sensitive to now, because I think when you're building and investing in brand equity, things like that can actually erode it if you're not careful. Absolutely. Um, and then when you pivot and when you, when you switched it and did something different, where I would imagine people also get very upset, right? When they're expecting certain things for free and you're like, actually, you know what? Not anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, I think uh, you need to like do the hard work again of finding the right customer that won't be upset. Right. And, and that's hard. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, but if you want to build an enduring business, it's necessary. Uh, Absolutely. More from our guests, but first a few words from our sponsor. Dealing with stress is such a daily struggle. I've tried tons of different strategies to help manage it, like a million different meditation apps. I'm sure you're with me too, right? Those just have not worked for me. But one thing that has is something called Nucom. The Nucom system uses cutting edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. It's the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to help you sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without any drugs or side effects. I've been using it four times a week, 20 minutes at a time, and it's really made a difference in my daily routine. Do what I did. Own the day with Newcom. We have a special link set up specifically to our listeners. Go to hustlenewcom.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of Newcom and their money-back guarantee. That's hustlenewcom, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. Hustle, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. Like honestly, on a side note, what do your parents think of this? You're like a bit, you're a baby, right? You're a baby. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they think. <laughs> I think they don't know bit, what they think. I think they're a little confused by how this whole thing happened. I, I mean, honestly, are you even a little confused? I mean, are you a little surprised at the success? Like, do you, how much of it did you think is just? I mean, you did a great, you do a great job, but what, how much, what, what, what percentage is luck, right? Like. You're 32. You're 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 very young. Your parents must be like you said, like oh my gosh, what's shocked? Yeah, I think I think I think they're shocked. I think you know. I think you make your own luck. To be honest, I think most people make their own luck. Um, you know, I think in the last in the last decade, I think I've tested like over a hundred businesses. To be honest. Yeah. Wow. And built a built a studio and venture fund around testing businesses and finding patterns and optimizing the data and understanding the distribution channels and the business models. And so um 
I'm glad we I'm glad we found found one that has really worked, right? It, it took a lot of time, um, and a lot of them didn't, frankly. You know, but what you just said is so true. I think it's also practice, right? You've had more practice probably than most people because yeah. you've attempted so many times. So you kind of learned from constantly, like, I guess, being re- you became resilient, right? You have to, you failed, you have to get back up again. You tried something else. You went through this door. You you know, you got yeah. that door got shut. What was one of the businesses that you thought were for sure going to like make, like was going to be like a hymns and it was just, you know, a dud. Oh man, there's so many of them. <clears throat> I know. Just name a couple. Um, that you thought, okay, this is going to be it. Years ago, and, and Chewy ended up getting built, uh, which is an incredible, like huge business. Got what, what is it called? Chewy. Oh, Chewy, Chewy yeah. Billions of dollars, right? And years ago, yeah. um, spent a lot of time on that industry, like the pet industry, um, food, supplies, insurance. I mean, if you look at spend in the United States, like yes. people spend more on their pets than their kids. <laughs> it's like totally insane. It's um, crazy. I know. So it has the dynamics for a really great business. Um, but I think, I think when I was approaching that business, you know, this years ago, um, I approached it from a purely financial and business standpoint and didn't think about the human side enough. And so when you think about that pattern recognition, you know, you have to combine both really well. Like if we had launched Tim's and hers as a place to come talk to a doctor and get quick medicine and it looked like what you'd expect that to look like, it wouldn't yeah. have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. Um, yet if we had launched an incredible brand like Hims and hers, that only did one of those pieces, like, you know, it would teach you about the issue, but it couldn't get you treated for it. It also wouldn't have worked. So you need, you need to build both sides of it. Um, and I think in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of learnings of how you combine both and what the necessary balance of both of them needs to be in order to succeed. Do you see any, um, what other area do you think that there's like a gap in the marketplace that people are not really kind of filling well? From all your, from hundreds of the companies that you've tried and kind of failed or kind of won, just you see, every, you've seen so much. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a, in a lot of ways, I think the virus has been um, like a crystal ball into the future, right? Mm-hmm. But like, there are, there will be big winners and there will be big losers in the future. Um, the internet's going to disrupt so much traditional legacy industry. Um, and while it's slowly getting disrupted, you know, you see how quickly it can get disrupted when in a world where everyone needs to be technology first, then there's industries like telemedicine or online education where it it is so clearly is going to be how, how people connect in the future. So I think, I think using that opportunity a once in a frankly lifetime opportunity with this virus to, to look at and see how human behavior is changing and what we can glean as to what will stick is a really unique moment in time. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount of value to still be built in harnessing the world's um, knowledge base and skills and expertise and then building platforms to let other people learn them and share them, exchange them. Um, what? Oh, sorry. I no, I just think that's you. to me when I look at what's happening, you know, there's, there's so clearly an opportunity to have better systems for people to teach one another, better systems for people to learn, better systems for you to become a specialist without all of the infrastructure and cost of a traditional university. You know, there's just so many opportunities there that, um, you know, harnessing all of those skills of the world and building platforms to let others learn them, I think is, you know, one of the bigger opportunities in the next decade. I also think that just from the telemedicine sp- uh, space, right? I mean, I don't think it's going to be going away anytime soon because why would you go to a doctor if you can do it online? And by the way, for much cheaper, right? I mean, you know, just from the fact that if you're like a, a parent or whatever, you got to get a babysitter is the time you spend just on back yep. and forth, you know, being more efficient cost. 
I mean, I, I, I think if anything, this, this uh, pandemic and what you've done has shown people that, you know, this is a real disruptor, right? Because it's really yeah. will change the way people move forward in their life. Yeah, I think, right? you know, my bet is, and again, this is, you know, my bet because I'm running this company, is I think 80% of, 80% of the reasons you go to the hospital today, you will come to a platform like him's or hers in the next five and 10 years. And yeah, so I'm, the healthcare industry is $4 trillion. 80% of that is completely accessible for us as a business. Um, and I think you're right in that once you experience telemedicine or experience coming to him's and hers for something like acne, you would never consider finding a dermatologist, scheduling an appointment three or four weeks out, going in person, getting medicine, picking up at the pharmacy, doing that every three months. I mean, it's just, it's just, you just wouldn't do it because the experience is so, so much simpler, so much more beautiful and so much more affordable. I mean, you're also doing things that I was actually, I, I didn't even, I haven't seen this that I saw that you guys were offering with this whole pandemic. Um, you kind of, you also kind of expanded your, your breath with uh, COVID testing, you know, the saliva testing I saw. Yeah. But the other thing that I saw, because that I've seen, but the one I haven't was these group therapy sessions yeah. or like one-on-one -on -one mental health sessions that I saw on your, even your site today that you're offering it for free for people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we yeah. launched a full mental health platform, which allows you to have group therapy sessions for free. So grief management, anxiety, depression, sleep issues, parenting issues, you know, just dealing with isolation from the pandemic. Those are happening every single day on our platform with licensed physicians and psychiatrists and therapists and counselors. So you can just join those for free. Um, and then there's also a, a, a full psychiatric experience. So you can come talk to a, a psychiatric professional, a psychologist, a nurse practitioner about anxiety or depression, um, see if medication could be helpful, couple that with individual talk therapy or, you know, um, uh, counseling. And so I think we just believe that, that that falls under the purview of health and wellness. And you know, one of the stats I heard most recently, which is an incredibly upsetting stat, is something like 25% of millennials have considered suicide in the last six months since the pandemic. Right? Wow, that's a high number. It's a really high number. I mean, it's a number yeah. that is like a terrifying number, right? I have two younger siblings. And so, it, you know, those those types of abilities to build a brand that gives people a place to come talk about this stuff and actually not only talk about it, but actually get treated for it and talk to the professionals about it, I think is really powerful. I think it's really powerful. I think I think in 10 years from now, you know, there could be 10 or 20 companies in the public market that are each worth 20 to $30 billion all in kind of consumer oriented uh, healthcare. Yeah. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, and there's been so many companies, I feel like me too brands who are coming up now, right. That are similar to what you do to some extent. Right. And so how do you keep on staying so competitive and keep on growing with, because at the time you were kind of one of the only, you know, acts in town, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And now when you know how entrepreneur, especially if you're like a good entrepreneur or if you're someone who, you know, is aware and observant, you're going to be like, I want to, I want to do what they're doing. Right. So how do you keep on staying sharp when that, when you have to like be looking everywhere, what's your, which, what, what's your, what do you, what's your, um, I guess your, uh, growth plan or, Competitive edge plan. Do you want to yeah. tell everybody? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. You don't have to tell everybody the recipe. But, I know, you know, I know. That's why. I think it's, you know, I, I think our team um, moves at a pace that most teams are not capable of moving, right? To be totally yeah. honest, I think. Yeah. Um, there's like a naivete within our team of like, and an awareness that like they shouldn't they shouldn't be able to accomplish as much as they're accomplishing in such a short period of time so i try not to tell them you know <laughs> that they're yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That they're doing that too often um, right right but i think there's a willingness to move fast and there's a willingness to to um, test and learn and it's very similar to frankly my background in the last decade right we are constantly experimenting nonstop. you know at any given time 
there's probably a hundred or 200 different um, tests running on the Hims and Hers platform across new offerings, existing offerings, price points, positioning. Uh, everybody in the company is ingrained with that mentality of learn quick, iterate, test. Um, and that means you know, being able to launch something like the at-home COVID-19 saliva test, which was the mm-hmm. first at-home saliva test approved by the FDA that we were able to launch, all the way to launching the full psychiatric care and the at-home group therapy sessions all within you know weeks, right? This didn't take months and months and months. It took weeks. And so right. the team is just constantly iterating, constantly testing, constantly working with consumers to think about other things that we could help them with. Um, and I think, you know, that consumer orientation and passion to help them and then abilities as a lean team. I mean, the company is, you know, hundred, hundred people, it's 130 people in total. It's a small company. Yeah. Um, you know, that ability to stay small and execute quick, I think is a huge advantage that, uh, you know, we try to, we try to keep on our side. Absolutely. And I heard most of your employees are women. Is it still the case or not really? Has it changed? Uh, I think that is the case. Yeah. Except the engineering team, I heard. uh, I think there's more (laughs) men on the engineering team. That's true. Although I think we're making some pretty good gains on that front. Um, But yet from the beginning, you know, the the business has been a really diverse team. You know, if you want to get, you know, men to think about things, it's really great to have, you know, their wives and sisters and cousins and moms and aunts in the room to like help think about how they could strategize, you know, getting this guy to do something. Uh, and I think the same goes for right. trying to, you know, help a woman with something, getting her, her friends around the table as well. So we've got a really diverse crew. Um, the majority, I think of the business is women, the majority of our managers and leaders are women. Um, and so I think that diversity has been a huge asset for us. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Can you, can we talk a little bit about your leadership and like ideas behind what you think, um, what do you, A, do you think you're a good, do you think that you have been a good leader and what do you think the qualities are that make somebody a good leader and why you've been successful with that stuff or, or being a leader to such a, you know, ever-changing company like you have? Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, the interesting thing about my job is, and I tell my wife this pretty often, I feel like every two weeks, my job scope and role changes dramatically. It's almost like I need to rewrite my job role you know, every month. Yeah. Um, because as the company scales and grows, what the company needs from me and where I can be highest leverage also scales and grows and changes. And so I think you know, probably my um, something that has served me well as a leader is just the, the dynamic nature um, of being willing to constantly kind of reflect and adapt to whatever the role needs from me now, um, instead of um, staying static. I think that's really important when a company is growing really fast. You know, and then I think the other things that are important, I try to be super transparent with the team as much as I can, like maybe to a fault. Um, I think I believe that if you hire really smart people and really capable people, Uh, you know, they can take bad news, they can take good news, they can take news that uh, is is unclear, they can take, you know, they can just, they can deal with it, they can figure it out, and they can think about it, and they can be a part of the solution. So I think, you know, my management team and I try to be as transparent and honest with them frequently. um, And I think that's really served us well. Um, And then I think, you know, another important leadership quality that I try to do as often as possible is just make sure people know, you know, this is like a stupid saying, but I agree with it. You know, make sure people know the game we're playing and how to keep score, right? Like, are we playing tennis or are we playing basketball, right? Like what's the game and what's, where are we going towards? What are we shooting for? And how do we know that we're getting closer to that, right? What are the numbers? What are the metrics? What are the ways in which we as an organization will get signal to support that we're going in the right direction towards the long-term vision. Um, I think as a leader, that's a really important um, element that frankly only you can provide. I mean, that's not something that bubbles up from the bottom that needs to be communicated off, off the top. So uh, I think that's, that's how I think about it. But frankly, you know, the company's grown so quickly 
Um, and I've been a part of founding a lot of companies, but you know, with each company, it's different. And, and as it grows, you have to just reflect and change your your style and behavior and characteristics because it, it requires a different role at a different stage. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. Uh, is there any advice that you can give people? Um, I would say the one piece of advice for any founder, if you can have one number one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece of advice. That's yeah, it. number well, just one. Just one. I thought that would be easy. I can get you can say twenty if you want. No, no, I thought we were yeah. limited to one. <laughs> we're uh, to one. One piece of advice that someone else, you, if to make it easier, that someone gave you that was the best piece of advice, and that you yeah. want to kind of relate, or, you know, kind of yeah. now share with yeah, other the people. Best that I, the best advice that I ever got was actually probably from my dad. It was. Um, keep it simple, stupid. And you can like think about that in different ways. Like keep it simple, comma, stupid, you know, or, <laughs> or keep it like really stupid, simple. Um, and it's both of those things. And so I think what I see a lot is entrepreneurs before they've launched, before they've like done anything, they're just like building huge complex systems and experiences and products, feature sets. And they're, uh, they're building huge teams and like, you know, just like all of that, for the most part, I've seen be a waste of energy and resources and time. So when you're starting a company, when you're starting an idea, <clears throat> when you're testing and you're trying to find product market fit, keep it really simple, keep it really small, keep the team, you know, tight um, and just find the one or two things that really resonate with consumers. It, you, you will not win on launch because you have the hundred feature set you'll win because you figured out the one or two that matters and you've built a really great product and business and offering around that key insight. So I would say, keep it super simple. Uh, keep it, keep it simple, stupid as much as you can. Either, either one of those work. Um, and what and when someone, when, when you have to be, I mean, you were kind of fortunate, you had a lot of different things working with you. You had a great, you had, you, you started with a great team. You had a lot of great practice with all those, with, with, um, atomic and, um, all those other, you know, all those ideas that you're, you're doing. If someone doesn't have those resources, right. And they have to be super lean. Um, what are some strategies or what's the best way to raise money? This, like, what's a, what's a very, good way to raise money and how to, and what to do with that money if you have to be super lean. Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. You know, I think in raising money, there are two different questions. I think raising money, what I've seen be most successful is talking about the people you are serving um, and energizing the human on the other side of the table to want to, build that offering and build that company for those people, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs I know, you know, they are very tactical in their fundraising process. They're telling investors about the margins and they're telling people about, you know, the future revenue, it's going to explode and here's what it's going to look like and all the intricacies of the features. And, and I think they miss often the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I tell people this a lot, don't let, don't let the simple facts ruin a really good story. Um, you know, I think when you're pitching and we're fundraising, and this is the same as it goes when you're hiring great senior executives and leaders, people are human. So tell them the human story, like get them excited about why you're building this and how it's going to help people uh, and why it's needed. And if you can sell them on that, I think you have a much higher chance of selling them on giving you money and joining your company, et cetera. But I think, I think a lot of people miss the story. Um, uh, and they pitch the facts. Oh, and I also, I wanted just to add, I had a guy on uh, the podcast recently who wrote a book. Uh, it was called The Unicorn Shadow. And the guy was a professor, a dean, um, professor at Wharton. And he basically is like a, a computer brain. And, it, and all he does is data and research, like 20 hours of the day, right? About what makes a startup successful, what makes, you know, a what makes a unicorn company like you, who makes you, Right. And he, you're basically his like, you know, case study, not you, but your type of situation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he said when people come and raise money, you know, when people are, are going to be giving you money, 
you know, it's not about the PowerPoint. It's about the person. It's actually about the person, yeah. right? If you if the person is likable, who how, who they know, it's about the circle of people that you know. It's about you want to be working with someone you like who you think is going to be successful. It's not yeah. about the numbers usually on the PowerPoint as well, right? And when he says that, it makes me think it's also like the who you know. So it's about networking is a big part of it, it seems like too, like getting in the right circles. Because you can be, maybe someone's not going to want to give you money for A, but they'll, you know, you keep that relationship and maybe, you know, your idea B or C or D can be something that would kind of, that would actually happen. Yeah, you know, most of, most of the investors for hims and hers that gave me money had told me multiple times in the past, no, when it right. came to other companies, right? Right. And so, you know, the, the community is small. Um, and so you're building relationships and investing in relationships um, because you want to work with great people. And so if, you know, the exact opportunity isn't there, um, you know, you still want to nurture that relationship because at the end of the day, you know, people... People, the people you have on your team in the early days, the people you have around your your board, are you know one of the greatest influences in the company's success, if not the greatest influence. So, I, I totally agree with that. Right. So now I have a couple like easier questions for you, just about you, and then you know we can kind of wrap this up. Okay. Easy. Like some like the the podcast is called Habits and Hustle. So, um, what are some of your daily habits that keep you on point? Um, I sleep a lot. <laughs> I saw that in your pre-show questionnaire and I was like, how is this possible? You, you say you sleep like nine hours a day or nine hours in the, a night. So what time do you wake up in the morning? Uh, Noon? <laughs> no, probably like seven or eight. My wife's over here like giggling, maybe like, <laughs> like on the close side of the eight. Um, no, I think I, I my ability to get things done when I'm really well rested is an order of magnitude better than when I'm not. And so I think, you know, I prioritize sleep a lot. So go to bed early, um, try to wind down early, uh, you know, try not to be a night owl, even though that's my instinct. Uh, and it just allows me to, you know, have a, a deeper bench to make better decisions, you know, more frequently throughout the days. So I think that's something I've always prioritized and, and will hopefully be able to continue to prioritize. So were you doing that even like two years ago, or a year ago when you were in the, yeah. So you yep. always just went to bed like around 10 o'clock, 11 and slept for nine hours. Yep. By the way, they say, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but sleep is the most important thing yep. in terms of productivity, right? Because if you don't have if you don't have enough sleep, everything else you know basically gets thrown to the wayside. Yep. Um, do you exercise every day? Like, give me some other habits that you do. Yeah, sleep is yeah, exercise not doing anything times a week. Yeah. Um, try to meditate a couple times a week, so I don't you know totally go crazy. Uh, okay. Limit caffeine a lot. Um, I've found that I make worse decisions, and I'm more on the front of my feet. Or instead of like the back of my heels when I'm drinking a lot of coffee, which makes me reactive and quick as opposed to thoughtful. Um, so try to limit caffeine, work out as much as I can, go for walks, try to go for some walks. And then, yeah, I think just you're staying as balanced because the reality is, is like these companies, these companies are marathons, you know, and I think yeah. built a dozen companies and raised a billion dollars in capital for them you know, you don't win because you're working longer hours. It's just not the reality. Um, you win because you're working smarter and you have better team and you're focused on the right things. And so, you know, being, being really high leverage with your time and realizing that, you know, building a company takes a decade, not, you know, a year or two and building systems to be able to succeed over that decade, I think to me is, you know, where I try to spend more time. That's a great advice. I think people think in you know in today's day, you know, work, work, work to be successful, but it's about being smart with your time and being efficient yeah. with your time. Uh, a couple more. Um, what's your what's your favorite hobby outside of work? Um, I love to uh, plant big fruit trees, which is a strange hobby. So we yeah we have 
maybe like a dozen or two dozen different apple trees and pomegranate trees. And I think it's just like a good way to get your hands dirty and be in nature, you know, which is so different from being on a computer all day and, and building a technology company. That's so, that's so different to like, you're also, you're a musician, you're a farmer and you're, uh, <laughs> and you're an entrepreneur. Okay. Your favorite TV and your favorite book. And then we can like wrap it up. Um, let's see. So favorite book is Creativity Inc., which is a book about um, how Pixar has so consistently built, um, you know, great movies out of the gate. Uh, it's like how they've built their creative organization, how they've empowered them. It's just an amazing book about organizational structure in order to create repeat success. So Creativity Inc., that's an amazing book. Uh, on the TV side, um, I really loved the... There's a Hassan Minaj Netflix. Oh, I love him. Yes, so, yeah, of course. He was, yeah, he was amazing. I don't think it got... Um, I don't think that totally show got more more seasons, but it was it like, did it? Did no, they I, think, I think they canceled it, but it had like, you know, oh. dozens of great micro 20 minute segments on cool topics around the world. So yeah, that was one of my favorites. Wow. You just like ruined my day. I love that show. I, I thought he was so clever. He's so smart. He's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Oh, great. are you sure it's, it's not coming back? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I've checked a few times, but I hope I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's canceled. Uh-huh. Jeez. Okay. And then, okay, one more. I forgot. Who's your, if you can just, what, what's, who's one founder that you really admire? One. Um, I admire a lot of them. I admire Steve Jobs' storytelling abilities. You know, I used to and still do watch, you know, all of his interviews like pretty often throughout the year. Just because his ability to answer questions and 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 tell stories about humans is so powerful, um, I really admire <clears throat> Elon Musk's ability to commit himself fully to his ideas. You know, he's made it clear that his money yeah. will be the first money into his businesses and the last money out. Uh, and I think that type of commitment and dedication and removal of safety nets and Plan Bs is a pretty critical part of, of building something really uniquely successful. Um, so yeah, I think there's elements of so many of them that I really appreciate. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was great to chat. Absolutely. And if you ever come to LA, do you ever come to LA or not so we're often? There, yeah, we're there every couple of months. We're, we're down south every once in a while. So yeah, we can definitely catch up then. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to make you, um, I'll make you go on a treadmill with me though. And uh, <laughs> if you don't mind, of course, you know, that could be your daily exercise. Exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> Good. Where do people find, I mean, most people know where to find you guys, mm-hmm. but just for those, you know, people living under a rock, where can people find him, hers, you, and all the yeah, rest? You can come to forhims.com or forhers.com. Uh, and you know, within an hour, get connected with physician and get treated for a whole plethora of conditions you might be worried about from the comfort of your home and, and get beautiful stuff delivered to your door to, to help it. So yeah, you can go check out forhims or forhers.com. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. 
There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.